The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 113. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, or as Jimmy, you, you always say, The Search for God, because <laughs> we had search. we had The Search for Spock, then we had The Search for Whales, now we have The Search for God, then there'll be The Search <laughs> for Peace. <laughs> so, as you can hear, joining me today is on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. Well, I'm still waiting for The Search for More Money. Oh, wait, that's Baseballs too. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was the subtitle. Uh, so please, folks, if you can, as, as a reminder, please share the podcast with your friends to help us grow this community of listeners. We have a lot of fun here on The Secrets of Star Trek, even and especially when we're discussing the the episodes and movies. More painful. <laughs> the painful yes. one. Yeah. Uh, you should ho- hopefully enjoy our pain in this. Uh, so please share the podcast with your friends. You know, talking about it you know, being so painful, it, it's so funny because I the last time I saw this movie I was maybe a teenager. And yeah. I didn't think it was that bad as a teenager. <laughs> until I rewatched it this weekend and went, "Oh, yeah. <laughs> this was I think the second time I've seen it, certainly no more than the third, but I think only the second time. So I I don't think I'd seen this since like the 1980s and I did not like it then and I did not <laughs> like it now. Yeah. Now, according to my uh, the I what I saw on my the online streaming, it, it said it came out in '89, which I actually yes. didn't realize it was that late that it came out. I thought it was closer about '86, '87, but well, in in fact, they used some of the next gen sets in this a to lot. save money. That's yes. that's what that's one thing that actually kind of impresses me about Hollywood, especially, but it's, you know, Star Trek. Yeah, half the sets are all next gen sets or original motion picture sets that were then redressed for next gen that were then redressed for this <laughs> they recycle so, well like the, the, the bridge set the bridge set is the same bridge set from the motion picture that then became the battle bridge that then became this bridge actually i read that the that the bridge set actually in this one was brand new they it was the one set they built from scratch i, I i'm seeing two different stories because I've, I've seen that oh, but I've also according to both memory alpha and Ex Astri Scientia, this was the, the last time that bridge set was used because then it was destroyed in a storm as they were filming this movie. Oh, wow. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe God was having something to say about this movie. So the, so the, the, the new set was the, the, Enterprise, uh, the six set, the oh, okay. movie uh, number six. It. Well, it, it wasn't just sets that they were recycling. It was also plots because... Yeah. Yep. <laughs> This there's a recurring pattern that 
occurs in the original series of Star Trek, where the Enterprise goes out and meets God, and for some reason God isn't as great as advertised. Either God <laughs> is a machine, or crazy, or a crazy machine. And that just keeps happening. It's like one of Gene Roddenberry's author interest tropes. Right. And he then wanted to do basically this plot for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And he even he wrote a treatment called The God Thing, and they were going to have a similar plot where they end up meeting God on the bridge of the Enterprise, and God explains that it's really an alien, maybe robot from an advanced civilization that every 2,000 years, there's that number, mm. like makes contact <laughs> with Earth, and... It appears in different forms and even appears as Jesus Christ and then God and Captain Kirk get into a fist fight on the Enterprise Bridge. And Paramount <laughs> told him he couldn't do that for some reason. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> and so they heavily modified it and, and the God thing became V'ger right. for the motion picture. But it stuck in his craw that he didn't get to do that. And so... So then when William Shatner got to do the plot Gene Roddenberry had wanted to do, you know, Gene Roddenberry did exactly what you would expect. He threw a hissy fit <laughs> and declared he, his opposition to this movie and that either elements or all of it are apocryphal, which is like, sorry, Gene, you signed the paycheck, you, you signed the contract, yep. you don't get to control canon anymore. Right. Well, in fact, I, I read that Shatner had said one of his inspirations, at least for the character of Cybok, were the televangelists of the 80s, you know, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, if, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Yep. And so, which is one of the things that makes this movie feel kind of dated, because the televangelist was such was an 80s thing. I mean, there's still televangelists, but but that the, the uproar over it and like the 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 I don't know it just makes it feel kind of dated. It, it, I I didn't I I didn't get a televangelist vibe from Cybok in mm. this. In fact, Cy, I I think William Shatner just knew Roddenberry's plot. Uh, okay, you know, mm -hmm. but in fact, there's evidence that he did. But uh, in fact, Cybok. I was really surprised by in this movie. So Cybok, for people who haven't seen the movie or seen it recently, is Spock's half-brother, and he's a Vulcan who does not do the whole logic thing, so he's what would, in Enterprise, be called Vitosh Katur, a Vulcan without logic. Uh, he's embraced the emotional side of things. He has no problem smiling and laughing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And he's on this quest. We don't know what it is at first, but it's some kind of semi-religious quest that becomes more explicitly religious as the movie goes on. And Cybok is likable. Yeah. He comes across as a, as a genuinely sincere, likable guy. The actor playing him is a guy named Lawrence Luckenbill, who's not otherwise known for a lot of movie and TV work. He mainly does one-man plays about historical figures. It also turns out he's Catholic, and he's from Fort Smith, which is just right next to where I grew up. Nice. Oh, wow. So he's from Fort Smith, Arkansas. But he comes across as a genuinely sincere, likable guy. His goals and objectives are different than Kirk in this movie, so they're at odds with each other for much of the movie. 
but he doesn't come across as a cackling bad guy. In fact, he seems genuinely nice and concerned about people, and he sacrifices himself at the end. So he's more likable. In fact, he comes across kind of as more likable than Kirk in some ways in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. But I have to give him credit for that because it would be so easy, especially if they were taking inspiration from televangelists, to try to portray the deluded messianic figure as just a cackling villain or incredibly selfish and not really concerned about others and just a big phony. And they didn't. Yeah. He's just deceived. That yeah. basically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actually speaking of Lawrence Luckenbill, his he's the son-in-law of uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, who were Desi Lu Studios, which was the original creator mm-hmm. of Star Trek. So I thought that yeah. was kind of interesting. He, he's married also, to Lucy Arnaz, right? One thing that it's kind of interesting about, like you mentioned, how uh, Gene Roddenberry sort of writes this off as apocryphal. The the book, the autobiography of James T. Kirk, that was a, a premium and we were giving away a benefit we were giving to p- patrons a while ago. It deals with this movie. It, it kind of, the, the book kind of deals with all of Kirk's life and career. It deals with this movie by making it a movie made by the people who, at, who uh, which, I forget what that, uh, the episode with the gangsters, the 20s gangsters, the people who emulate oh, a piece other... piece of the action? Yes, yes. And uh, they made a movie about Kirk and, and and McCoy and you know and, and the Enterprise crew and this was the movie they made. Oh. <laughs> and so Kirk gets to see the movie, you know, with Spock when they go back to that planet at some point and they come out of the movie and they're like, "Wow, that was weird. I don't know what they were thinking." <laughs> so <laughs> So I like the way they deal with it. <laughs> it's kind of like what they did with the uh Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies in uh in Stephen Moffat's 50th anniversary novel where right. uh, they they canonized those or brought those into canon as movies within the Doctor Who universe. Right, right. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much the only way you can really deal with it. So one of the things I, wanted, I thought was interesting also is it feels a little bit, we talk about recycling of things. Some of the plot feels a bit of a recycling of Wrath of Khan. Um, mm-hmm. You have a desolate yep. planet, a charismatic leader, his ragtag army, uh, mind control some starfleet officers help him take over the enterprise in order to carry out his mission i mean th- i felt like, like they said well what made uh wrath of khan so popular let's sort of bring that back because the fans are like that uh it just felt a bit of a like a, we've been here before in mm-hmm. this in at least in the first half of this movie they also apparently also wanted the humor factor from oh, yes. Star Trek Four, the immediately preceding film that had knocked it out of the park. And yep. so apparently there was a mandate from the studio to make this funny, like Search for Whales. And they they tried. And build <laughs> in many places. Wow, <laughs> did the jokes land flat one after another. Oh yes. Yes. The, the whole uh, the whole uh the camping scene where they're out there around the fire fire pit just was painful. And it yeah. was supposed to be hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, let's well let's get into the into the 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 plot as such as it is uh, as, as we go. It's we start on Nimbus 3, the planet of galactic peace, which is, you know, clearly an ironic name for this planet. It's it's in a neutral zone. I'm not sure which one. Uh we 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 have two neutral zones in Star Trek, so the Romulan and the Klingon, but we have the neutral zone. So there, there's a <laughs> I assume it's kind of at the intersection of the two. Well, there's... that's possible. And of course, no. The, the Picard novel cleared that up that it was Romulan. Yeah, it's right. in the Picard novel. 
Yes, right, right, right. Thank you. <laughs> so it's apparently a failed experiment in which the Federation, the Klingons, and the Romulans were supposed to cooperate in developing a planet together. Uh, it ends up they, they gathered together the dregs of the galaxy to settle it because that's the only people who would bother to come to this desolate place. And it's and and they uh, had to ban all weapons. So what happens when you ban all weapons? People make new weapons that they yeah, can they use. They just get their 3D printer and start cranking them out. <laughs> yes, or <laughs> air pressure could, uh, that shoots pebbles at each other, which uh, against phasers does not seem all that effective. Basically airsoft. That's right. So uh, out of the dust storm, a, a rider on a pale horse appears. Oh, um, uh, it's actually <laughs> a blue horse with a little horn. Oh, uh, that's right, right. Which I, I guess Shatner wanted to be a unicorn, but the studio said no, no unicorns. <laughs> well, it is a unicorn. It's just got a really short horn. Yes, it does. It's not the classic uh, unicorn. Uh, Cybok is the, the riding the horse. He looks at this this guy, this um this actor who's always plays like aliens and other like weird guys out there because he's kind of got a very interesting uh look to him he's but, funny uh, looking and and, yeah. and to make him an alien because i thought he's a human at first yeah um but no he's got uh, he's got a prosthetic mouthpiece where right. in inside his mouth so when he opens his mouth he, you see he's got these enormous gums and very small weird teeth at the bottom yeah. of the gums so instead of, of being a forehead effect or an ear effect or a nose effect he's got a gum effect so his <laughs> his, his least, dentist is probably pleased i guess yes at least it's something different i would give him that yeah so uh cybok looks at this guy who's digging holes in the desert and tells him you know your pain runs deep and offers to explore it with him and expose it and share it and uh uh the guy responds his name is john uh which is not it's j uh apostrophe o n n because like the martian whatever. manhunter john jones exactly yep. Uh, he says, it's if a, as if a weight has been lifted from my heart. How can I repay you from this miracle? Join my quest. And then he says, what is it you seek? And Cybok says, I seek the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wrong movie. Wrong movie. <laughs> yeah. He literally says, what is it you seek? And he, like this, and they get, get right to that point. He says, uh, he seeks ultimate knowledge instead of the Holy Grail. Well, first he says, I seek what we all seek. It's like, oh, okay, well, then I don't have much choice, do I? <laughs> mm. right. Already, Already on that. Yes, we're Whatever already. I'm already there. Uh, but Cybok says he needs a starship, and so he's going to contrive to bring one to the planet. Uh, although I'm curious how he got to this planet. Like, what, what's he doing? Yeah, there? I mean, I know. It, it, why did he got here somehow? Yes. So why didn't he just do his share your pain thing with the crew of that ship and already be on his way? <laughs> right, and I'm, I'm, I don't think it. The, it, the, the new movie never explains. How does this sharing your pain and exploring your pain result in the person? It, it's apparently not brainwashing. They just have they just decide to throw out all of their ethics, all of their previous loyalties, become and, traitors, and you know mutineers right. and all that I, good stuff. Yeah, it, it, the film is inconsistent on this, and yeah. I think that you have to say, despite despite. Cybok's claims merely freeing people of of pain. I mean, this is like giving them a you know an an antidepressant, anti anxiety drug. <laughs> right. That's not going to change their values or life goals. So right. I think there has to be some kind of telepathic manipulation beyond that. 
right. that uh, is brainwashing them, even if Cybok doesn't realize it or can't admit it to himself. Right, right. That has to be. So uh, we switch from here to uh, Yosemite National Park, uh, El Capitan, the the the, the uh, giant geological feature. It's not really a mountain, but El Capitan. Uh, uh, did I say it incorrectly? I, I think I said think it the you Apple said way. It. Yeah. Oh, I said El Cap. I said El Capitan, which is oh. apparently there's that that debate over how do you actually say it that it was raging. Oh, well, tomato, tomato. <laughs> Um, all I know anyway. is in the 23rd century, free climbing El Capitan should be illegal unless you're wearing a jet belt. Yeah. Right. Well, we're to believe that Kirk at his age, which he's still, he's not a young man at this point, as we've seen in a couple of previous movies, is free climbing El Capitan. Like that just, I, I have a hard time believing that. I get that Shatner wants us to believe that he could do it, but, um. And so I saw this interview with Shatner about this, like this video interview on, on YouTube, where he said um, the the climber climbs the mountain because he tells Spock, I'm climbing it because it's there. But Shatner says the climber climbs the mountain not just because it's there, but because he wants to hug it, envelop it, make love to it. <laughs> like, Ew. Wow. Like Shatner. <laughs> Easy boy. <laughs> I mean, could, could it like. Even the interviews about this movie are weird. <laughs> just, Although, uh, to be fair, Shatner has come clean and admitted repeatedly that this movie was not as well yeah. done as he had hoped. So it's not right. like he's in denial about the problems about the movie. He's admitted them. But for all I know, it may be this is the face he is climbing is so dangerous. Yeah. You know, that I don't know if you'd be allowed to climb it today. But certainly by the 23rd century, when you have teleport buttons and jet belts right. and jet boots, as we're about oh, yeah. to see, there's no way they would allow people to do something as dangerous as climb this without some kind of protection. Yeah, you, you'd think emergency have like transport? A, yeah. Well, emergency transport or anti-grav belts or, <laughs> yeah, you right, say, like the right. jet boots or something like that. Although jet boots, they look pretty clunky. They look like ski boots, basically. Yes. Or like a force field that catches you. It wasn't the movie Free Solo about someone free climbing El Capitan, I think. I don't know. I, there was a movie. I didn't mm-hmm. see it about someone free climbing something. Well, it, so what's interesting is the uh, shots of Spock talking to Kirk uh, while he's climbing I- in Yosemite were actually filmed on a set in a parking lot in an overlook. And you can see <laughs> El Capitan behind them. <laughs> like the actual face of El Capitan, like in the distance, it's like uh, I'm kind of you're kind of ruining the illusion here. Yeah, <laughs> but well, I'm but, surprised uh, they went that far instead of doing it like I don't know in a studio and just had a picture of Yosemite <laughs> in the background. I know a Matt a Matt picture. Uh, they the stunt man who did the the free fall. Uh, Ken, his name is Kenny Bates. He's credited with the highest descender fall. So he obviously had a cable on which you can see in the shot. Uh, he has the the credit with the highest descender fall in the United States. So wow, mm-hmm. um, that's <laughs> good. Good. Good luck for <laughs> to you there. Uh, don't don't break that record. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Doctor McCoy is watching through Luke Skywalker's binoculars. Yes, and is a nervous wreck and confesses as much to himself. Yes, and it is you know pretty dramatic watching Kirk do this incredibly stupid thing. And then to watch Spock do the even more stupid thing of going up and trying to talk him out of a climb 
<laughs> while he's in the middle of a climb yeah. <laughs> and is hundreds of feet above the ground. And McCoy straight up and, and the writers thus hang a lantern on it by talking about how irresponsible it is for Spock to be talking to Kirk at this moment. And even Kirk gets in on the action talking about how Spock is distracting him. Right. And then we have the inevitable fall and yep. Spock uses his jet boots to zoom down and grab Kirk as Kirk is inches above of course the ground. Yes. And and grabs his leg to keep him from slamming into the ground. And comic book physics apparently apply. Right. Because if Kirk had really fallen hundreds of feet, maybe a thousand or more feet, and then Spock grabbed his leg inches above the <laughs> ground, he would have ripped his leg out of its socket. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking the, thinking the same thing. Uh, well, speaking of comedy, by the way, I did think the line, McCoy's line, uh, where he says, if I'm not careful, I'll end up talking to myself. I thought that was kind of funny because yep. he's talking to himself. Uh, yeah, the special effects, by the way, were terrible in this. Yes. Like that, that scene. Like oh, Kirk, in Kirk that falling, scene, yes. Yeah. Um, apparently, ILM was not available to do the movie, and so they got some second-rate fly-by-night uh, outfit who didn't have enough time. The special effects throughout were pretty bad, at least the, the on-planet stuff. Obviously, yeah. you know, the spaceship effects were, were incredible, but... Well, they recycle those from... There's places yeah. like the shuttle looks like a model flying in front of a green screen. <laughs> right. You know, this film has a reputation for bad special effects, and at least when it comes to the space ones, I didn't think they were bad. Now, I agree, like, when Kirk's fallen off the mountain, it's terrible. You can tell it's in a green screen. But other than that, you know, once we're in space, uh, the space oh. effects, to me, aren't bad. Not for the time. I mean, they, they're not yeah. modern, but... But for the time, they're not bad. With one exception, there is a moon that we see that apparently has a quantum orbit because it leaps from one moment to the next in its <laughs> orbit without smooth transitions between them. Well, to, uh, to, to kind of extend that, the re the, a lot of the space effects of the Enterprise in space are recycled ILM effects from previous movies. So that's what yeah, they doesn't like. surprise but, me. But there are other things like the the galactic barrier effects and the yeah. the blue planet at the end that is yeah. all weird yeah. looking and stuff. No, I, I agree that the space stuff looked good. It was just when they were in atmosphere. Right. You right. know, whether it is him falling or space or the shuttles in atmosphere it just looked terrible. Yeah. So uh, back to Nimbus 3, where we are taken down to Paradise City, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. Thank you, Guns N' Roses. Uh, <laughs> we find uh, David Warner playing uh, Sinjin oh, Talbot. This is Star Trek, where the grass should be pretty and the girls should be green. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we have David Warner, uh, a great actor in a, uh, in a very small role, uh, playing Sinjin Talbot. He's the Federation representative there. Uh, Caitlin Dar is the very un-Romulan Romulan ambassador, uh, and Cord is very stereotypical Klingon. Uh, who he, he does a great job actually. Well, uh, he, it's interesting. They're they're both so Cord is is Klingon, and he is stereotypical yeah. in some ways, but he's also different in others. I mean, he's enormous for one thing. He's he's right. obese, and he's he's at this point in his his development, he's a drunk. I mean, right. he doesn't, he's all he does for the, he doesn't even get a line for a long time. I didn't know if they were going to play him as an entirely mute character. All he's interested <laughs> in is drinking. <laughs> right. And, and David Warner's character, St. John something or other, St. John Talbot. something Talbot. or other, Talbot, yeah. um, is when we meet him, he's smoking a cigarette, which is unusual for Star Trek, especially, yep. you know, 
so here we've got the smoker and the drinker, and they're like have been beaten down by living on Nimbus three. And then here comes the perky new Romulan lady who's not <laughs> been jaded yet, and she's yep. like, "Well, I guess I got here just in time." <laughs> uh, this is going to be the, a new sitcom, uh, ver, uh, Star Trek uh, series <laughs> featuring <Yeah>. these three. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Cybok's religious sect uh, attacks the city and uh, takes the three diplomats prisoners. Uh, so there's a big extended action sequence that does there's nothing really much happens besides that. Then we we cut to the Enterprise where Scotty is complaining about the new Enterprise and how she's all in pieces and been put, put together, together by, by monkeys. Yeah, <laughs> a group of monkeys, which is good. Uh, apparently, uh, he and Uhura are in a relationship. They they talk about trying to get go on a date. Yeah. Which I yeah were they explicit about that? I mean, I thought they were. I didn't get that. I thought they were just hinting because she like brings them dinner, which looks like two unpainted, you know, bags of chips. Yeah. Well, they were supposed to go on leave together, so they're, they're supposed yeah. to go on leave together, and she's she's doing a lot of touching of the she face, touching of his face. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. It and then what happens later? In what the happens later? Yeah. yeah, but at this point, I didn't get that they were actually in a relationship. Yeah, which would actually take the edge off of what happens later if they're yeah. already in a relationship, right? Then they get red alert in space dock, uh, and the the screen above the communications panel says "Good morning, Captain," which yep. is a reference to um, Captain Kangaroo. Yeah, <laughs> mm. the uh, the they the sort of recycling that idea of how can you have a red alert in space dock? Well, apparently they they have them more often now. Then we we have Sulu and Chekhov lost in the woods. Which is great because they're the helmsman and the navigator lost yeah. in the woods <laughs> mm-hmm. in the in the twenty fourth century where we have GPS. So I don't know what you know what they've decided not yeah, to carry. Yeah, the communicators with them. does have their little GPS uh, Google Maps. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're recalled to the ship and they they try to play it off like don't let them know that we're lost. We'll never live it down. Uh, but of course, Yohora figures it out. Another reason why you need to be able to take communicators off speakerphone. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Chekhov tries to pretend there's a blizzard, and she's like, I can look right now and see that it's bright and sunny there, and warm. Then we have Kirk, McCoy, and Spock doing their camping thing at night, because it's it's nighttime oh. now. They haven't been picked up because they didn't take their communicators with them on their leave, which seems like a violation Which, which by the ranks. way, is, is a hint for today. You know, when you go on vacation, just leave your cell phone in the car or at home. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. McCoy's still mad at Kirk for risking his life. But Kirk says he knew he wouldn't die because he knows he will die o- alone. So that's uh, a reference to later on, by the way. And in fact, uh, Star Trek Generations, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that too. Um, Spock uh, pull- pulls out his unitasker that apparently makes marshmallows. Uh, this was, <laughs> by the way, he calls them marshmallows. This was apparently originally a flub by Leonard Nimoy. He he said melons instead of mel- marshmallows. Uh, yep. But they ended up incorporating it into the script and referring to it several times there there's even a explanation of it in the novel yes where kirk and spock have reprogrammed the library computer to display marshmallows instead of marshmallows so when spock looked up appropriate camping behavior he would be fed false data (laughs) yeah something (laughs) like mccoy paying a technician to alter the database it was because he knew that spock would look up uh, camping in the database to 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 learn about well, it. Funny thing too about that little uh, marshmallow dispenser is you could actually get one in the eighties when this movie came out. One like oh. Jiffy, one of the one of the uh, marshmallow companies, Jiffy Puff or whatever ones there are. They uh, actually <laughs> craft it was craft 
created one of these where you'd load it up with marshmallows and hit a button and it would pop out. <laughs> nice. Talk about a unit tasker. Uh, so they, they have a row, row, row your boat sing along, which <laughs> Spock doesn't do very well. Yeah, or um, at all at this point. Yes, yes. Uh, then we have, uh, we cut to space oh. where we have the oh. Pioneer 10 space probe. Oh, no, before that, we have the Uh-oh. Walton scene where oh. after, they've, after they've had the aborted sing-along. Um, yes, they go to bed. They go to bed and we have this laborious saying of goodnight to each other individually, which is meant <laughs> to parody the ending of, yep. the, of episodes of the Waltons. But right. It's it it drags. It just really drags. And today, you know, a lot most people won't even know what the Waltons were. It, the Waltons was a fa- was a family show about a family of kind of poor mountain people in the who lived this country lifestyle in the early 1900s. And it, because of the family atmosphere, the episodes would close at night with the lights in the house, we'd see the house from the outside, the lights would be going off and they would be saying goodnight to each other. And goodnight, John right. Boy was like one of the classic lines. It was endlessly parodied back in the 70s. Yeah. And so here at the end of the 80s, they're doing a Walton's parody. <laughs> and wow, does it drag. And this is the moment where I noted for myself, because I, I knew this was going to be a difficult movie, but I wanted to give it a chance. And so I said, I'm going to pretend I don't know anything about this movie. I'm going to try to pretend I don't know we're heading to the God thing. I'm I'm not going to judge it by modern standards. I'm going to try to just take it as it is and then see how long it takes before I start noticing this is markedly inferior. And <laughs> was this <it>? long? <laughs> well, you know, it. I mean, I already had notes about things I didn't like, but that doesn't mean markedly inferior. It just means thing I didn't like. Right. But by the time we got to the Walton's Goodnight parody, it's like, okay, this is starting to drag. This is this is it it this is markedly inferior. I, I will say though, I, I did like, you know, at the the last line of it was Kirk saying, you know, Fox says goodnight, Jim, and Kirk goes, We will see. Or, or, <laughs> we will see, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of like, Yeah, that's everybody else's reaction about this point. This is gonna be yeah, a good we'll night see. watching this movie, right? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> So after that is where we get we get to uh, seeing the Pioneer Ten space probe in in, in space uh, being destroyed by a Klingon bird of prey. So a couple oh. hundred years from now, the Pioneer Ten would probably be just outside the solar the solar yeah, system, which is so where these it is Klingons now, just outside are hanging around us. Like they keep doing this with space, like Earth space probes, like pretending that they're that they will have traveled uh, hundreds of light years away or dozens of light years away. In just a few hundred years. Like, stop doing that, Star Trek. Well, at least when they did it in the Frozen People episode of Next Gen, they they hung a lantern on the anomaly and said, how did it get out here? Right. right. Here, it the MST3K mantra applies. It's just a show I should really just relax. They're doing it for the sake of a joke. Yep. By showing, <laughs> right. showing us, the, they show us the familiar man-woman record image from Pioneer 10. That yes. Carl Sagan helped design, and then they show us the Klingons blowing it up. And so this message of international interstellar peace and goodwill is getting blown up by Klingons. Ha ha, isn't that funny? So right. it's it's here for the sake of a joke. So we you know, one shouldn't worry about, even though I did, of course, uh, <laughs> how did it get this far out? The problem though, once I set that aside, because it's just for a joke. Once I set that aside, I have to say, is this a good joke? 
No, not in this context. <laughs> it might be in some other context, but here right. after the Waltons parody, oh, great, they're destroying Pioneer 10. <laughs> right. And, and to be and, honest, how many people even know that it is Pioneer 10, even in the late 80s? Well, it, it said on, it has an on-screen thing that says Pioneer 10, but but yeah, who does even people know what Pioneer 10 is? Because I mean, I don't even remember when was Pioneer 10 launched. In was the that, 70s. In, in the 70s. 70s. It was, and yeah. for people who may not be uh, fans of this stuff, uh, Pioneer 10 was a space probe that was the first space probe to get close-up pictures of Jupiter and confirm some but not all of Ingo Swan's remote viewing predictions about Jupiter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll have to listen to uh, uh, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World to find out who Ingo Swan is. So the, these Klingons, by the way, are a hapless bunch. I mean, they're kind of a joke. They're, they're, yeah. not, they're, they're not even supposed to be elite. I mean, even in the movie, they're, they're not supposed to be this elite bunch. They're just sort of this piratical crew who wandering around looking for something to be warriors against or something. Um, and they don't really get much to do in this episode. They kind of just foils at a couple points. Get, get to use the uh, Klingon periscope. <laughs> yes. The, the, the only time we ever see the Klingon periscope for shooting, because we're supposed to clearly get the sense of a submarine out of this. And these are the really stereotypical Klingons. I mean, they're out here in space. They're up to no good. They're militaristic. They destroy stuff for fun. They talk to each other with the thick guttural, you know, mm. language and everything. And there's, and they even, they they look like stereotypical Klingons. The makeup is not horrible, but there's this one woman who, I don't know, they got like a bodybuilder lady. I think the character's name is Rix or something like that. Vixus. Vixus, yeah. okay. Yeah. And I knew there were X's in it. <laughs> and she must be a stomach sleeper because on the back of her head her hair comes out in this straight projection that goes back like 18 <laughs> inches there's no way you could roll on your back wearing that on your head and it's too complex to take apart every night right. so she must like be uh, someone who normally sleeps on her stomach and maybe occasionally flips onto one side or the other <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yes, they they find out about the hostages of the uh, on Nimbus three, and that there's a Federation starship being uh, dispatched. And so the captain Claw uh, says, "I've always wanted to fight a, a Federation starship." So they're that they're now on their way there. Uhura, meanwhile, because she can't get a hold of uh, Kirk on the phone, takes a shuttle down to Yosemite to pick them up. And of course, you have to have the ET lights, you know, where the all you see is yes. the bright light coming down from the sky. Right, right. Uh, in the back aboard the Galileo Five, which is the name of the shuttle, they they are they see the Enterprise from far off as they're approaching it in orbit. And uh, we have the quote from uh, "All I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by." And McCoy gets it wrong uh, out of out of nowhere for what reason? How is that relevant to this context? And we've heard it before. Right, right. It, it, it's um, it's to show. Kirk as the consummate, you know, ship captain, but also to set up the joke, which is McCoy thinks it's Melville and Spock corrects him because as being John Maysfield and uh, and then saying, I'm well versed in the classics, doctor. Then how come you don't know? Row, row, row your boat. Which, you know, so getting that joke. Well, uh, let's be honest here, too. You you know, Kirk said that every time he approached the ship from a shuttle. <laughs> right. That was just like yeah. his his lucky charm. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Could be. <laughs> There, there. Also, we should mention. So they're being sent on this hostage rescue mission to Nimbus Three, and they're in orbit around Earth. Yes, and Nimbus Three is in the neutral zone. 
Right. So it's like a long way away. And the standard explanation for why the Enterprise needs to do something is there's nobody closer. Yes. But the writers seem to seem to realize that's not entirely going to fly when you've got the distance between Earth and the neutral zone. I mean, there's got to be people in Federation starships in that area. And so they vary the normal excuse a little bit, and they say it's because, yeah, we've got other people out there, but no experienced captains. So that's why we need <laughs> Captain Kirk. And I'm like, okay, that's nonsense. There are going to be experienced captains. Right. And even a less experienced captain is going to be better than an experienced captain in a starship that is falling apart and in desperate right. need of repair and doesn't even have transporters. That's yeah. why they had to send shuttles was because the transporters are down and the transporters on the Enterprise will remain down with one exception for the entire movie. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, as far as I know, a straightforward hostage rescue. I mean, yeah. they, they, you don't need like Jim Kirk for that. No, you need a teenager with a transporter. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah, it, it, the, the, whole, the premise is incredibly flawed. So they talked to this uh, Starfleet Admiral. It's actually Harv Bennett, who yep. was, was he the director producer. of, producer of the uh, earlier movies? Uh, he didn't want to do this one, and Shatner convinced him to stay, stick around. Harv Bennett will never do anything Star Trek ever again after this. <laughs> but, uh, but he's the, the Admiral on the screen. The yeoman on the bridge who takes Kirk's coat is actually Shatner's daughter, Melanie. Hmm. Uh, she spends the rest of the scene, literally they, they set this up as a joke, a background joke, she spends the rest of the time wandering around the bridge carrying his coat because there's no place to put it. <laughs> hmm. They they literally put this into the movie. Ugh. So <laughs> they, uh, I thought thought like the the technology keeps failing. You know, even like Kirk tries to do his um, log into in this mm -hmm. little tablet sort of thing, but it's not really a tablet, which has a big light up button that says uh, "system failure." Like, so it, does it? It breaks often enough that you have a dedicated giant light on it that says system failure. Yeah, but it, like it, it fails by popping things out of it. It's just overdone. Like, like, fine. The ship is you know having troubles, but don't like the, it. Just you would think stuff human. like that would still would yeah. would still be you know operating as normal because that's not a part of the ship. That's just a device right. you bring on the ship. So it's the the technology breakdowns are done for comedy, not for dramatic uh, purpose, which is what my problem is yeah um so the uh the, the the hostages on nimbus 3 are revealing that they've been that they've actually surrendered to the forces of the galactic army of light that's how they're characterizing cyborg's group uh, oh and and kirk ha learns that one of them is klingon general cord and mm -hmm. of, of course here it comes his yeah. military tactics were required reading when i was at the academy <laughs> like there is so much yeah. required reading at the academy it is one of the biggest <laughs> tropes in all of Star Trek is how every time they meet someone, they're required reading at the Academy. Uh, I think the best part of the movie is the this Enterprise's version of 10 Forward, the, the officer's lounge with the oh, big yeah. ship's wheel. Uh, uh, that, uh, that's my favorite part of the, of the whole movie. It's, it's like not very that, big, but it looks nice. Yes, it is a very nice place to have a, 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 a Romulan ale and a cigar. <laughs> so Spock recognizes Cybok uh, on the screen, but doesn't say who he really is at first. Oh, and this is like those this is like those Sherlock Holmes stories where if if only the person had revealed the appropriate information at the appropriate time, it would have gone so much smoother. 
Yes. It's like Spock does not recognizes Cybok on the screen of the bridge, but doesn't tell who he is. And then they have a sidebar with him in the lounge where it's like, okay, he reminds me of this Vulcan I knew who rejected logic and was a revolutionary, but not, oh, and he's my brother. Right. <laughs> or or even his name is Cybok. Right. It it's so very strange, just like it doesn't make any sense why he wouldn't say anything. There's no there's no logic, shall yeah. we say? Even even in the case of the brother thing, I could be semi-forgiving of that because they have established Vulcans are extremely private about yes. some things. So I could I could see Spock saying it's not relevant that he's my brother, so I'm not going to share that part. But humans like to know the names of things. Yes. So he should at least say he reminds me of this guy, Cybok. Right. right. And then they could look up his information about him or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so they they get the Nimbus three. The the transporters are down, like you said, and they, also they detect the Klingon bird of prey approaching. So we now have a ticking clock here that we have to mm-hmm. deal with. And so they take shuttles down. We have actual Starfleet Marines in the in the shuttle. The, this was established as these are real Marines. Apparently, part of the Enterprise skeleton crew that they have on <laughs> on this post shakedown wow. mission. Yep. Chekhov on the communicator poses as the ship's captain in order to distract Cybok. Yeah, now here comes the first of several related things. So one of the problems with doing these movies was they needed to get all the cast on board. But not all the cast are the featured players. The featured players are like Kirk and Spock and maybe McCoy. Right. But the, the other cast members, it's like, why do I want to do this? just to sit at the console and punch a couple of buttons and have a couple of lines. So they need to find moments for the other actors to, quote-unquote, shine. And they did that pretty successfully in Search for Whales, you know, where, like, Chekhov gets this mission, and Sulu has this mission, and Scotty and McCoy go off on this mission. And so they, they broke it all up and gave everybody something to do. And they're trying to do that here. And so over the next sequence of the movie, we're going to see the shine moments for all of the secondary players. And the first one we've had already, in fact, in Search for Whales, we had Chekhov, Rank, Admiral. And <laughs> right. so, of course, yeah. he's, we're going to play on Chekhov's ambition again, and he gets to pretend to be the captain. Yes. And so that's his moment to shine. And then, uh, And then we get... Uhura's moment to shine oh, okay, but oh in, the, in the moonlight. <laughs> so during pre-production meetings, the screenwriter, David Lowry, jokingly proposed to have Commander Uhura appear as a uh, fan dancer of some sort mm-hmm. uh, in minimal like, clothing like in Lola order to Falana. lure away the... What's that? Like Lola Falana. Yes. If I'm remembering uh, the, her name correctly. Uh, in order to lure away the hostage takers from p- the Paradise City compound. And was surprised when the producers approved of the idea right away. We love this idea. Put it in the movie. He's like, I was joking. So we have this embarrassing scene of poor Nichelle Nichols having to do this, you know, dancing I, in the moonlight. But she is she she is a singer, and she's yeah. she likes singing. She sang on the original series a number of times. That's one of her things. Yeah, I think Nichelle Nichols was into this. Well, and, and she would, and she would, she would dance. You know, her would dance around as she's singing. You know, in the original series, so not seductively like this, 
but yeah. she would still well, a little Un- bit, a little and bit. Unclothed. Oh. unclothed, unclothed, unclothed. <laughs> yeah. She was flirting with Charlie X and Mister Spock. Well, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. But but here, like, I just I felt like 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 if you're coming up with a plan to distract them, this is a kind of a weird one. Like this oh, is like really who, who weird. Com- who comes up with this? Like okay, uh, Kirk turns to her. Okay, first take off all your clothes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like. Uh, I think I'm going to call Starfleet HR at this point and file a complaint. Where, where, where do the feathered fans come from? I, I, <laughs> right, right. Where did Uhura come from? She was not established as being on the shuttle with the Space Marines. That's right. Like, was she flying it again? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, Sulu was flying it. Sulu That's right. tapped, tapped uh, George, I mean, Kirk tapped George Decay for his moment to shine That's and right. had him come with. That's right. So anyway, they they distract these guys with Yuhura uh, so they can steal their horses to get to the compound faster. I, I have to say that from my one time seeing this, the two things I remembered from this are the final confrontation with the entity pretending to be God yep. and Uhura's fan dance. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't yes. remember the context. I didn't remember why Uhura was doing the fan dance, but I remembered Uhura does a fan dance in the moonlight. <laughs> yes, we well, as a teenage boy, that made an impression. Yeah, uh, for on me anyway. Uh, so the the away team attacks the settlement, and the two notable things happen. Uh, Spock neck pinches a oh, horse. Oh no no no! This isn't next gen. The landing party pinches attacks Sorry. the settlement. That's right. Sorry, but I've got my <laughs> terminology. nomenclature. Div- yes, an- anachronistic. Yes. Uh, so Spock neck pinches a horse. And Kirk fights a Catwoman, uh, <laughs> and and drowns her in an inch of water by with, with, with apparently no concern for her life. Well, I don't know that she drowns, but it, he does throw her into a pool table where they in a gaming establishment where they have been playing pool with pool balls. You know, like the knock it like into billiards. the corner yep. pocket, like billiards, yep. but it's water, so it's like water pool. And I don't it's, know how conscious the. <laughs> pool pun here is that it's a pool of yeah. water where you play pool i don't know if they kill her but they leave her face down in the water so uh, she doesn't move not... after that so and there's no <laughs> sign afterwards so who knows a little cold-blooded there anyway the the hostages turn out to have stockholm syndrome and they've uh they're they're they've joined the conspirators the tables are turned uh the enterprise crew is taken captive and we learned Cybok's name at this point, but not that he's Spock's brother. Right. But he does ask Spock to join him and in stealing the ship and fulfilling whatever his mission is that he has not yet revealed either. Then we have this drama of the bird of prey approaching the Enterprise, and you know they have to sneak the shuttle onto the Enterprise quick enough before the bird of prey arrives, but the shields are up, and so... They're going to have to crash land the shuttle into the shuttle bay. So this is George Takei's moment to shine, do this yes. fancy landing. Which is, uh, as they say, any landing you walk away from is a good landing. So uh, <laughs> that's about all you can say about this is they end up walking away from it. They they left all of Cybok's people on the surface. So, so Most of them. Do they end up bringing them up later or do we no, leave without them? They, we leave without them because of the Klingon attack. Right. They were planning to bring more up, but it ended up being only a few of them, including okay. the ambassadors. Right. But then, after the crash landing on the shuttle bay, uh, Kirk and Cybok wake up before anybody else, and they get into a fight and end up outside the shuttle. And Cybok apparently has is not a pacifist because he like grabs a gun yep. and is mm-hmm. going to shoot Kirk with it, 
or at least threaten Kirk with it. And he's, by the way, been saying things like, bloodshed is not my intention, I don't want violence and stuff, but he's willing to use it. And he Kirk causes him to drop the gun, and then we see this weird boot step into frame that <laughs> Kirk says, pick it up! And, and Mr. Spock picks up the gun and, like, points it right at Cybok's chest. And Kirk is yelling, shoot him! And I'm going, I don't think Starfleet I don't think the Starfleet Judge Advocate General's office is going to look favorably on shoot him in the chest when he is not armed and not apparently a threat at this moment. But instead of saying, Captain, I can't shoot him because he's unarmed and not a threat at the moment, Spock just refuses to shoot him and later justifies it on the and even hands the gun to him. Right. And later justifies it on the grounds of he's my brother. So, okay, I don't think the Judge Advocate General is going to support that legal theory either, (laughs) and especially not handing him the gun. I think both Kirk and Spock have opened themselves up to very serious charges if the JAG wants to prosecute. Right. Yeah. I mean, there might have been some justification for shooting if the other of Cybok's followers were also armed and they're trying. They are already clearly um not hijacked pi- pirates trying to take over the mm-hmm. ship in that sense so there might be justification but yeah, but once once somebody's not a threat rules of engagement will should yeah. not allow you we have a ruby ridge episode coming up on mysterious <laughs> world where we're going to talk about <laughs> rules of engagement that's right but wow this is kirk is overly bloodthirsty and spock yep. is overly sentimental you yes, don't need that, to go to the he's my brother to justify not shooting well, him. Well, and there's there's still the risk to the ship because they're there for the whole purpose of taking over the ship. You should at least do something to make sure they can't do that. You're right. Do something, Spock, to to, to prevent it. Because what happens the, is he they, they bring McCoy out of the under restraint out of the shuttle, and that's what ends up being the thing that makes you know Spock give up because they've got McCoy threatened violence on him so they they they've they've lost the the bit here and uh they end up putting spock and mccoy and kirk in the brig where they are you know spock is revealed about who say that finally reveals cyborg is his half-brother mccoy is the voice of reason between kirk and spock here like they're yeah. kirk and spock are both unreasonable here and mccoy's the ones like hey look straighten up just you know he spock couldn't kill can't kill his own brother and, you know, so on and so forth. We've got bigger problems to deal with. Actually, I think Spock should not have a problem killing his brother if it's justified. I mean, right. he's he's the Mr. Logical. This is true. But I did like some of the—I did think some of the humor in that scene kind of landed, mm-hmm. you know, where Spock is saying, you know, he's my brother, and Kirk is like, oh, I know he's a fellow Vulcan. No, no, I mean, he's my brother. Spock, you don't have a brother. Technically, you are correct. See, I told you, I have a half brother. <laughs> and that's that what Kirk says. That word, yeah. Kirk says, "I got to sit down." <laughs> so he yep. opens up the, uh, the, uh, the seat to sit down. So Cybok, meanwhile, on the hangar in the in the shuttle bay, you know, he he's starts the, doing the you know release your pain thing to Uhura and Sulu. So he's turning them. Uh, then he tells the crew about his plans to go to Shakari. Yeah, and he's apparently converted the entire crew. I mean, I know it's a skeleton crew, but did he really go and do this share your pain thing to dozens of people (laughs) and we didn't see it? I mean, how did they arrange the logistics of that? Did he wander around the ship doing it to people or did they like 
forced the people to come to him in a line or how did the, I mean, we need yes. more because all of a sudden everybody's going along with him. Right. They had, a, they had an all hands meeting at the rec hall and everybody showed <laughs> yeah. up. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they missed Mr. Scott. Yes. Yep. He's he's uh, running about on his own. And so uh, they're going to go to Shakari. It's beyond the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy, which is apparently different from the Great Barrier at the edge of the galaxy. No ship has ever survived crossing the Great Barrier. No probe has ever come back from it. Yeah, yeah. except that this tumble-down Enterprise and an old bird of prey are going to do it, no problem. Yeah, with no <laughs> explanation for how. Yes. Other than a suggestion that it's because we've conquered fear. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, Scotty comes along and engineers a jailbreak. He blasts open the, uh, the wall, uh, warning them with Morse code. Yeah, we should say that the that Shakare is so it's this planet that apparently is this in mythologies all over the galaxy as the point of origin for life. Yep. It's Eden. Yes. So it's Eden or you know, it's this perfect place where you might find God. And also because they wanted the Cybok part to originally be played by Sean Connery, who was unavailable because of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Mm-hmm. The planet Shaka Ray is named after Sean Connery. Shaka oh. <laughs> <laughs> Connery. Yes. I just thought that... they uh, they just wanted to hear him say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, it's at the center of the galaxy. So that's 25,000 light years away from Earth where the movie started. Wow, Voyager yeah. would love to have had a drive capable of getting 25,000 <laughs> yes. light years in a day. They, right. they, they, would, they would have been home in time for the weekend, I mean. I know. Yeah, they would have been home in three days if they had had that drive. <laughs> Apparently, it's not full of black holes like we like we all hear about today, but this one planet. So, yeah. So, we have Scotty uh, during the jailbreak, and they're walking around through these big corridors, which are apparently the uh, the back lot of the enterprise and uh he has to direct kirk to where to go to get to the turbo lift shaft to climb up to where they need to go uh and he's oh scotty you're a miracle worker you know this you you know your way around oh i know the ship like the back of my hand he turns the corner and clonks his head and it gets knocked out and i i think a lot of fans like they play it for laughs like oh scotty he knows the ship like in the back of his hand and and hits his head and a lot of fans didn't like this what they did Mm -hmm. to scotty here like playing that off for for laughs like no, Scotty is really good. Like, like we don't want to play off Scotty as a sort of a dope. I mean, yeah, I, I don't mind. I, I didn't think the joke was funny. I thought it was too obvious. But yeah, but I didn't mind. I mean, after all, this is a brand new ship that was put together by monkeys. <laughs> That's right. So. That's right. Which monkey left that thing hanging low there where I could hit my head on it? So of course they have to do a high climb to remind us of El Capitan, and Spock will of course have to show up with grav boots. And and then they drink Willy Wonka's fizzy lifting drinks and zoom up to the top of the uh, <laughs> shaft dangerously. So, one, the numbers go the wrong way. Yep. The numbers yep. are arising as they ascend. No, no, the num- bridge, the deck number one is the bridge, and then you go yep. down from there. That's always been established. Two, apparently this ship has like 80 decks. Like, this, is, this ship is gigantic. Like, yep. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And why does Spock show up with the grab boots from above? If he if he went like that means he apparently went up some other turbo lift and then came down. Why couldn't they have just taken whatever route Spock went in the first place? Like yeah. it's full of plot holes. Yep. 
Then we have Scotty and Uhura's uncomfortable encounter in sickbay, as I labeled it. So this is interesting. So Uhura has been liberated by Cybok, and Scotty has not. And so as soon as he wakes up, it's like, I've got to get back on the transporters. That's what the last order I had from the captain. And Uhura is like, oh, wait a minute. Hey, you want to hear you want to hear uh, Cybok out and so forth. And she's genuinely concerned for him, you know, because he has just had a head injury, even though they've cleaned him up. And she's also putting the moves on him. Yep. I mean, right. she's talking about how now that we've been liberated by Cybok, he's put us in touch with feelings we couldn't express before. And so I think she was like, bringing the unpainted silver bags of potato chips to Scotty earlier as dinner <laughs> was like her hinting at a relationship, but now she's acting on her feelings. It's like making a more pronounced move. Uh, yeah. And Scotty is receptive, but says, not now, dear, I have to fix the transporters. <laughs> and also hints that he's not physically up for it right now in view of his recent injury. Right. In, in in my present condition or yours. So he's being very gentlemanly there, not taking advantage of her. Yeah. So, so Kirk and uh, Spock and McCoy got to the that forward observation lounge, and that's where the emergency radio is, apparently. It's a lot smaller than, than 10 forward. It's maybe like three forward or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it's like a large, it's like a living room size, a nice den. So uh, they apparently get a hold of Starfleet Command. It turns out it's really the Klingon woman, Vixis, and so they know where they're going to uh, 000 Mark II, which is apparently the center of the galaxy. And uh, so then that's when Cybok shows up, and they have this conversation. Cybok says he doesn't control minds. Uh, they have that whole thing. And so now he's going to do the thing to each of these three guys. And he starts with McCoy. And now here's the controversial bit in this episode, which is... One of them. What, <laughs> one of them. McCoy's pain is apparently that he killed his father in in, ep- in an episode. As of- euthanasia, to put him out of his suffering. Right, and has to relive the moment. And what makes it even more painful is they found a cure for whatever was ailing his father like a week later. And And in one sense, I'm like, yeah, that's actually a pretty good argument against euthanasia, isn't it? Also, the don't kill innocent people is another good argument. Yeah, right, right. And I didn't see it as euthanasia because they talk about how the machines are basically keeping him alive at this point, his dad alive at that point. So, and of course, there's the argument of whether or not you're required to maintain life-sustaining devices beyond the point where yeah. your body can sustain itself anyways. you know. And so I didn't see it as euthanasia. I saw it as he was turning off the machines, basically, pulling the plug, you know, right. to use kind of colloquial term. In in I didn't, that didn't occur to me at the time. I think they wanted us to read it emotionally as euthanasia, but you're right. They may have, they may have, they did have a line in there about the machines are keeping him alive. And in that case, turning off the machines when someone's in incredible pain is not euthanasia. It's just not taking heroic measures. Because you're not required, yeah, you're not required to do extraordinary measures of any kind. I mean, whether it's a surgery or keeping the machines running. Indefinitely, you're not, you're not required to do that. Keep life now. You are required to, you know, do the ordinary measures like food and water, and that's been arguments, right. you know, in moral issues. But I, you know, I saw this scene as the pain of he made the decision to pull the plug, and then you know, a couple of months later, he could have been cured, right? And that was his pain. That's what I, at least, that's how I saw that scene. 
because of Cybox lying about, well, the machines will keep them running indefinitely. Right. I thought it was a f- pretty well played as a it scene, was. actually. And uh, the way they visualized it, uh, it was also interesting because even though they're standing here on the 10 forward equivalent, the lounge on the Enterprise, yep. it's like suddenly the hospital room appears behind McCoy. And we have this hybrid set between the lounge and the hospital room. Right. I thought it flowed very naturally. I thought it was emotionally affecting. I was distracted by the fact that they don't have morphine, apparently, in the 23rd century. It's apparently a lost medicine. (laughs) Right. It's like we don't know how to make Greek fire. They apparently don't know how to make morphine. (laughs) Also, I thought it was interesting McCoy's father does not have a Southern accent, which only goes to show a truth from linguistics, which is your kids pick up their accents from their friends, not their parents. (laughs) So apparently McCoy's father moved to the South, even though he was not a Southerner, and McCoy picked up the Southern accents from his little playmates in (laughs) in the early 23rd century. There you go. Uh, The one thing that kind of distracted me is that it it looked like, they don't actually say it, but it looks like Kirk and Spock are seeing what McCoy sees. Actually, they do late, they They do do. after this, in the next one, when they're looking at Spock, Kirk says, what are we seeing? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm kind of curious how, like, so there must be some sort of telepathy or some sort of mind control thing going on. So that sort of puts the lie to Cybok's Well, he could be just liberating them and telepathically sharing this with everybody, but- And he every time you'll notice he insists on privacy, he tells other people to get out, because mm-hmm. apparently if you're in the area, you will experience what this person's pain was. Okay. One other thing I've mentioned is, is they mention, they say God a lot in the, in the whole movie. Yes. Including cursing, you know, like he's taking God's name in vain. McCoy says, my God, don't do this to me, so on. And I, I wonder if that was a deliberate choice to mention, to use God a lot because of where we're going with this to meeting God. I don't know. They've used, they've taken the Lord's name in vain, so to speak, in previous movies. I didn't notice them doing it anomalously here. I was watching for, because I was trying to pretend I don't know where this movie is going. How would I evaluate it without knowing where it's going? Yep. And so I was watching for when do we get our first mention of God as a plot element? Mm -hmm. And we're actually not there yet. Yeah. We have this scene with McCoy, then we get to see Spock being born and baby Spock, who is apparently Vulcan babies are born at a more mature stage than human babies, (laughs) (laughs) but he's covered in red blood because of Amanda. And he's then taken before his father, Sarek. And Sarek's only line is so human. And so this (laughs) is, this is Spock's pain. Yeah. And then Kirk has this, I need my pain speech and won't let Cybok do the pain thing to him. And then Cybok is, well, you're lost. So come on, uh, Spock and McCoy, let's, let's go find heaven. And this is a moment that was affected by the actors behind the scenes because as this was originally conceptualized, Spock and McCoy were going to turn sides and go with Cybok Mm -hmm. and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly said absolutely no. We These right. characters would never turn on Kirk in this way, which is uh, it, certainly they wouldn't given the kind of 
you know, anti-anxiety pill that Cybok is giving them. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, they've been possessed other times. And so right. I, I wouldn't buy the idea that never would they turn. Right. But it, not under this. Okay, I buy that. And the original version was they're going to have this falling out and and it's going to be Kirk alone. Yes. You know? oh, yes. And, and so of course it is. But I like this version better where Spock says to Cybok, I may be your brother, but you don't know me as well as you think. I'm right. no longer the lost, abandoned, emotional wreck of a child I was. I found my place in life and I'm, I'm my place is with the captain. Yep. And McCoy says, oh, you better count me out, too. And so they stand with him despite the anti-anxiety meds they're on now. Well, that that fits the line earlier before Cybok goes down to do the whole whammying of them with the in the, the lounge there. He says these three are going to be tough because of the connection that they have with each other. Right. Yeah. Their bond is their bond of friendship is so strong that they're going to be they're going to be hard nut to crack. Right. Cybok right. does say that. And then only after we've had all that, thirty minutes before the end. God gets mentioned as a plot element for the first time when, when Cybok says that God is going to be on Shakare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says he received a vision from God who waits for them on the other side. When Kirk says to Cybok, you're mad, there's this nice little acting moment where Cybok looks unsure for a moment and says, am I? And then he kind of recovers. But, you know, that, that moment where the, the, the prophet isn't yep. sure whether he's really a prophet or just a madman with a delusion. So that, that that was actually a decent moment, too. Mm-hmm. So they, they make it through the barrier. There's not much to, you know, it's the usual going through a barrier stuff. They needed to give us some explanation for how they're going through the barrier other than we've conquered fear. Right. It's like, this is a fear barrier? Then why didn't any of the probes ever come back? Do android probes have fear? <laughs> <laughs> so they find a planet with this huge energy reading, of course. It's Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Cybok take the shuttle down. I like at this point, Cybok turns the Enterprise back over to Kirk. Yes. And because he now, now that we've got this mystery here, of course Kirk's going to investigate it, so let the professionals investigate it. Well, and, and they, they make that explicit, too, because he touches the, you know, the little plaque on the wheel in the lounge that says, you know, where no man has gone before. Right, right. So now we're going to go. It's like, oh, now I get to be an explorer. Yeah. Okay, I can do this. Head now to Eden. Yay, <laughs> brother. <laughs> So they land, uh, step out of the shuttle, and are in awe of Monument Valley in Arizona. Oh, no, 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 no. That's the Trona Pinnacles in California. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I'm just used to so used to seeing mesas in cowboy movies from Monument Valley. Yeah, well, you can always <laughs> identify the left and right mitten rocks if it's, if it's Monument Valley, but these are the Trona Pinnacles in okay. San Bernardino uh-huh. County. Okay. That makes more sense. They didn't have to travel as far for those. Yes. So the uh, the sky darkens, and when they get to the, when they do this laborious climb and the, you know the usual long walk because uh, you can't land a shuttle near anything, the sky darkens <laughs> and a sort of stone temple forms out of the ground around them. It's like Stonehenge, only more like fingers in the air that are kind of semi closed yes. around our characters. Yes, a beam of light shoots from the ground, and a ponderous voice speaks, uh, brings out a bunch of faces, but settles on the classical old. Old human a, man with the beard, yeah. uh, like our our God the Father image. Pretty awesome beard in this case. Yes, oh, yes. it is a, g- a good beard. This being wants to use the Enterprise to leave the planet, so Kirk asks the logical question 
uh, what does God need with a starship? And th- that's actually the, the one line everyone remembers. Yeah, yep. it, it's and it's the best line in the film. Yes. <laughs> What's best is the way he delivers it is he kind of yeah. raises his finger and goes, um, I have a question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, point, point of order. <laughs> that's kind of funny. My thought when I was watching, I was like, oh, hey, we do that. So kind of behind, pull the curtains back a little bit when we uh, when we want to you know, talk, we kind of hold up our finger to say, uh, I'm next. I'm next. I, yeah, I have a question. Yeah. So uh, when Kirk asks for proof that you're, he's God, like, hey, you know, uh, McCoy says, Jim, you don't ask the almighty for his ID. But well, why not? <laughs> yeah. And so he gets shot with light beams out of the eyes of the uh, this alien being who apparently yeah. does not like people to ask questions. And this so this creature who we're never really given much information about obviously is not god and yep. originally it was going to like at some point r- manifest itself with a demonic face and the yep. idea was going to be this is the devil and so even though we've met the devil that implies that god is real right but they didn't end up going with the devil imagery so we don't have that implication we've just have this creature that is really blowing it as a god or at least <laughs> as as a judeo christian god yeah. because uh, i mean he needs a starship, number one, and he also. I also thought it was a dumb line when when the god entity is saying, "How did you get here? How did you cross the barrier? Right. We came in a starship." It's like, no, duh. You're obviously not native to this planet. Of course, you came in a starship. How did you get through that barrier? Um, which is a question the film doesn't answer for us, right? So this creature needs a starship. It doesn't know who Kirk is. Yes. Because who is this puny creature? It's like, don't you know? Aren't you my creator? Yeah. And it then it starts referring to the fact it's been imprisoned here for an eternity. It's like, okay, God has not been imprisoned anywhere for an eternity. Dude, you're blowing it. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> This is really, you need to take some more God lessons before you try this again. Yes, when you're Im- now, imitating God is a tough deal. Now, I, I, can, I can throw a little bit of a headcanon here, because you know, we talk about you know, that no probe or ship has come back from the barrier. Headcanon time. This is totally my headcanon. Okay. The barrier yeah. is actually not that big of a deal. It's just God, quote unquote, this being, oh. kept destroying everything it tried to latch onto to get out of this planet. Right. And that's right. why nothing got through. So the barrier right. wasn't actually a barrier. It was just some like really cool uh, nebula cloud thingy that they had to fly through. And nothing yeah. ever came back. Yeah. Yep. But now that God is shooting up the place and using his eye beams to burn everybody, Cybok realizes it's not God and it must be a deeply hurt individual. And so he decides to do the share your pain thing on it and, <laughs> yeah. and, and leaps into the, uh, oh, first, though, the God thing manifests itself as Cybok to Cybok and is like yes. taunting him with his own face. But then Cybok steps into the light and starts doing the heal your pain thing with God, and that causes things to happen. Right. Well, I'm not sure if, if Cybok would be successful, because at that point, Kirk calls down a torpedo on their position. <laughs> To, yeah. to blast everything, which apparently kills Cybok, but not yep. the alien. So Cybok no. is dead. And and just for the one moment in the film where the transporters work, uh, they work and McCoy and Spock beam up, leaving Kirk alone to face God. Of course. Right. And he's running from God. Now, at this point in the film, Shatner had wanted himself to be chased by like 10 lava monsters. 
uh, lava men. <laughs> and there is footage, deleted footage of the one lava man suit or rock man suit that they were able to make. Yeah. But it didn't work. And so yeah. they cut it out from the film. And that's part of the reason the timing in this final sequence is all wrong. It, yes. it just goes too fast. It's too choppy. It's not properly developed. They ran out of money. And so they didn't have the money for the scene that Shatner wanted. And so as a result, Shatner is just running from a big glowing face. Yep. And then a Klingon bird of prey rises over a hill and shoots God dead. One bolt. Shoots him in the face. Yeah. yeah in the face, one bolt. So not not the strongest villain we've ever encountered. Right. And no. and apparently the it was Cord t- gets the 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 defangs these Klingons General Cord calls him on the line because Overaws he's Overaws them. Yeah, because he's the the famous General Cord. I mean, it's just it all wraps up way too quickly. Like the, it's mm-hmm. anticlimactic, literally. It's there's no there's no moment of, oh, this is, you know, what we've all been building for. Oh, it's over. Like it's just there's nothing yeah, the there. The timing is the timing is wrong. And it turns out that for reasons that are not clear, Mr. Spock was allowed to man the phaser on the Klingon ship. Yeah. And so he yeah. like turns around and there's he. So Mr. Spock with uh, the logic guy killed God. Is that the logic killed? <laughs> yeah. That's not really yeah. the message here. But you have this emotional reunion between Spock and Kirk on the Klingon bridge. And Kirk's about to hug him. And this, I thought, actually is funny is Spock says, Please, Captain, not in front of the Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was a good line. So uh, then we have the cocktail party on the ship. I do like the idea of Scotty drinking scotch with the the, the Klingon Ford. general. After he, after he killed a glass of Romulan ale, just downed <laughs> yes. it. Yeah. So uh, and then uh, Kirk and McCoy um, and Spock have this conversation. Uh, Kirk says, uh, cosmic thoughts, gentlemen. And McCoy says, we were speculating. Is God really out there? And Kirk says, maybe he's not out there, Bones. Maybe he's right here in the human heart. I'm like, yeah. And and Spock completely ignores the racist thing there. <laughs> but actually, I mean, it's not as it's not as bad as what I remembered from having seen it before. I had remembered the line as now we know God is not out there. He's in our hearts mm. and which is which yeah. would be even more saccharine. Yep. But this is not so bad, because here they're just wondering. They're not closed to the idea that God is real, and actually, you know, the maybe he's right here. Actually, that resonates with some language from the Bible in, in the Torah, where Moses mm-hmm. is talking about, and, and God's voice is talking about how, you know, God is not distant from you, he's as close as the word in your mouth, and things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. So, I was, I was okay with that. Okay. It's... It's not there's, as neat as, as, as like where you've proved the devil is real and therefore God must be real, but they're being open. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So uh, Spock says, uh, you know, I was thinking of Cyborg, I've lost a brother. And Kirk says, yes, I lost a brother once, but I got him back, which is apparently a reference to Spock. Uh, but what about yes. mm-hmm. Kirk's actual brother that he lost? <laughs> yeah, Sam. I know. It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Because as soon as he said, I lost a brother once, I'm thinking, yeah, in Operation Annihilate, where those horrible flying egg painful jellyfish things killed him. <laughs> yes. And then, but I got him back. And so, oh, you mean Spock. Well, thanks for dissing your other brother, dude. Yes, your real brother. Ugh. So anyway, we end up back at Yosemite in the campsite, finishing their vacation, singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat around the campfire uh, with Spock playing the uh, 
Vulcan liar. So, uh, and that's that's how mm. we end. Bach has learned the, the where life is is but a dream, apparently. And that's it. So, uh, any final thoughts, gentlemen, Father Corey? Well, our first question is, how on earth does Star Trek VI get greenlit after this? But apparently somehow <laughs> this made enough money to uh, allow the the, bet, the far more superior movie to be produced. Yeah, and it was apparently, I mean, Harb Bennett has talked about, we almost killed the franchise with this one. Yeah. Yes. And, and we should mention, I, you know, we've gotten all the way through this without actually mentioning it, but so there was this contractual thing that was the prompt of this movie, which is, Apparently, going back a ways, Leonard Nimoy and Bill Shatner had clauses in their contracts that said, if one of us gets some benefit, the other gets the same benefit. It was a way of keeping them at parity so that they would both be on board with things. And during the filming of, of Search for Whales, Leonard Nimoy said to Shatner, you know, I'm directing this. And this was the second film he directed. He directed Search for Spock and Search for mm-hmm. Whales. And I'm directing this. You could demand that as a benefit. <laughs> to direct the next one. Thanks, Nimoy. <laughs> well, not just, not just to direct it. He wrote it. Yes. Well, he, he had story approval and, and affected <laughs> the basic shape of it. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it was because of Bill Shatner's contractual clause is they he and nimoy referred to it as their favored nations clauses yes and because of that he got to direct a movie and he got story control and and it resulted in all this and he's admit he's owned up to the fact it is not the best of the movies and yep. others have said it and it almost killed the franchise but at least we we got six next yes. search for peace and so yep. that one actually works in fact the search for peace may be my favorite of the movies hmm. yes uh, and obviously, the the odd even rule applies. All the odd ones are are not as good. All the even ones are good. Yeah. And so it's time but, uh, for after this for a step up. Yep. Uh, and then one other one other thing, I, I kind of shake my head, but it, it, uh, the toilet that where uh, Kirk sat down said, "Do not use while in space dock." Of course, this yeah. comes from from the old trains where it actually you know you would use the toilet and the waste would go onto the tracks and it would say, right. "Do not use in station." Because if the train's sitting in the station and you flush, it's going to go into the tracks right there at the station. But why the Enterprise doesn't have apparently a sewage tank or <laughs> some way to use yeah. the replicator system to take care of that waste? They imply yeah. the replicator system uses that stuff later. <laughs> but, but the point the point is why why would the toilet why is that warning? Yeah, why yeah. would you not want to use it in space dock if it's not just flushing it out to space? Oh, it's just it's emblematic of all of the. The ways they just kind of decided to go for jokes instead of... And that's exactly what it yeah. was. It was for yeah. those, because that was still, by, by by 1989, pretty much every train, at least you here in the United States, had septic tanks, you know, had yeah. storage tanks. But that wasn't that long before that, you know, early, right. by the early 80s, there were still trains that dumped. I, I still remember going to Boy Scout trip where the, there was an Amtrak train that it still dumped to the tracks when you used <laughs> the toilet. <laughs> So, yes, the the poop jokes for Star Trek. Yep. Uh, Jimmy, any final comments on this one? Nope, I think I'm good. Okay. Uh, I, I will say that uh, at least David Warner gets another chance at, at a, a good Star Trek role in, in Star Trek VI as Gorkon. Yep. Yeah, he was good in this one as just being a really burned out dude. Yeah, he just didn't get much of a much of Yeah. Uh, and, of course... Another chance with uh, the There Are Four Lights episode of TNG. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's his greatest Star Trek role. 
Uh, and uh, the greatest Klingon in Star Trek is coming up in Star Trek VI, played by, um, oh my gosh, my brain just wiped, um, Sound of Music. Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer, thank you. Best Klingon ever, quoting Shakespeare in the original Klingon, <laughs> which, which is great. All right, so let's wrap this up. We've gone on too long talking about this movie. We do want to, before we finish, though, it's very important that we take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us. To create the secrets of Star Trek, including Daniel M, Anne M, Axel L, Kyle J, and Mary S, their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So uh, that's from us. Uh, what do you think of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier? Uh, are we wrong? Was this your favorite? I'm sure somebody loved this movie, so I want to I hear from you if you do. Uh, let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Next Generation episode where no one has gone before. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, what does God need with a starship? <laughs>